capturing this one photo in this one type of condition, uh, getting up this one obstacle, whatever it might be. And it's a... Uh... <laughs> there it is. The compressor. Goddamn thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm so used to hearing my compressor interrupt me that when someone else is there, it totally, free, totally freezes my brain. Oh, my uh, God. Totally <laughs> forgot to turn it off. I've been getting so... I've been so much better about that, too, but there we are. All right, guys. Welcome to episode nine. Doug, TJ, how are you guys doing? Pretty good. So good. What have you guys been up to? Well, lots of Space Marines still. That seems to be all I ever paint. Got a whole bunch of guys just ready to go. Uh, just like regular troop guys that are probably like 60% done. A couple more Dreadnoughts because those are my favorite. Something about a, a square stompy murder box that is endlessly entertaining to me. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I've bought some Tyranids. I've heard it said two ways, but I say Tyranids are like alien bug monsters because I decided to start a new army against my own better judgment. So <laughs> I, I like alien bug monsters, ABMs. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I mean, they're kind of like a, a mix of every science fiction trope when it comes to like vicious aliens, you know, unthinking, unfeeling, just murderous giant kill machines (laughs) i mean that's pretty much it there'll be a bunch of those probably on the facebook page before long maybe probably not till really after the start of the new year i got enough stuff on my plate as it is and i already have a scheme for them so it'll be cool it's not olive drab is it no it is kind of like a like a pale for anyone not familiar with what a tyranny typically looks like it's they have like a fleshy part, I guess, like their bodies, and then they're covered in uh, like an armored carapace over certain, like, you know, on their back and on their head and stuff. Their skin, for lack of a better term, is like a bonish tan color, and their carapace armor is like a blue-black, like dark blue-black with uh, stripes, like feathered stripes i've I've got a couple i'll put some on the facebook page um so you can see kind of what i'm working with but yeah i'll have uh lots of those things to paint how many of those did you get <laughs> well a lot so i every year games workshop does like a like a christmas bundle or whatever where they pick a couple of different other factions and throw a whole bunch of models together in a box and you get it at a discount um, it's usually one of the only ways to get their product at a discount. The box I bought is the one of the Christmas boxes, and it's, I don't even remember, it's like 50-some models. No, maybe not that many. Maybe it's like 40, 30, 35, something like that. It's a fair amount, plus what I already have and what I've bought since I decided to do this. So all told, it'll it'll be a lot more than my Space Marines who are super elite and like a small force. I got my work cut out for me, needless to say. It sounds fun. Look forward to seeing something uh, a little bit different. Yeah, looking forward to not painting something olive drab 
be honest with you. Do you have any other figures or anything like that that you're working on painting? Well, I know we briefly, I think, talk about it later in the episode when we when we talk to Matt, but I also bought a one twelfth scale George Washington uh, bust. So it's the, the first bust of, okay, that's not true. I have a different bust that I have not worked on. So this is the second bust I've bought, but this is probably be the first one I paint. So it's George Washington, 1796. So that would be the end of his second term. For those of you not familiar with U.S. presidential history, think of like classic old George Washington. I don't know. I'm kind of intimidated by it because I've never done a bus before. It's a whole different skill set, in my opinion. To me, that's more, I don't necessarily consider what we do or what I do, at least as art. I guess it's like art adjacent a lot of times, but I think bus painting is as close to actual what I would consider art that I'll probably ever do. So I'm a little intimidated by that because I don't consider myself an artist, let alone a good artist. Is there a painting or something that the bust is based off of that? So as far as colors and those kinds of things, it's pretty straightforward as to how you'll paint it. Yeah. Yes. From what I could figure out based on the company that makes it, which is FER miniatures, which is what they make. They make busts and large scale figures like this. Um, I want to say it's a painting of George Washington that was done towards the end of his, his second term. I don't remember the artist. I mean, he had a lot of portraits of him painted. And if anyone's, I mean, if you've ever read a book about George Washington, they, they will tell you how many paintings he had done of him. It was no camera. So if you wanted a picture, you had to have someone paint one of you. And since he was essentially the most famous American on the planet back then, he had lots of pictures painted of him. There is a reference. I don't know if it's like exact, but it's, um, there is, but then again, you're trying to match the art style of, you know, an extremely talented 18th century painter. I'm just chuckling to myself. I have a picturing of George Washington wearing a t-shirt with a picture of himself on the front and it says BMOC. <laughs> what about you, Doug? What you been up to? What's new on, uh, on your front? Well, let's see. I was sick this week. No, it wasn't the COVID. I did get tested, but uh, I was down for a few days. And that should have been a perfect excuse to work on things, but I just felt like doing nothing. So I got two things this week and Jack left town. (laughs) The model room is coming along though. That's my project right now. I've kind of eliminated my hobby space, but we're getting ready to put drywall up in the model room. So hopefully in the next month or so, I can actually have an operational space with lots of room to do everything I want. I'll have my spray booth in there. I'll have, you know, a large table or two. I might even be asking for opinions on what to do with it. So if anybody has any ideas to do with a, what to do with a space that's 10 and a half feet by 11, like you know, some meters by some more, I don't know what that is in metric. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. That sounds awesome. I've been uh, messing around with my, uh, I have a couple of Mangtoon tanks in process. I did an M4A1 in Operation Cobra. I'm working on the paint on that today. That's turning out pretty good. I like that olive drab and black camo. Textured it all and kind of souped it up a little bit. Reshaped the shovels. That's been fun. And then I also have a Samwa S35 uh, tune tank and added uh, some texture to that as well. Drilled out the exhausts and also 
added some rivets that were kind of missing and everything paint I'm doing and everything I'm kind of incorporating tune elements into that. So like my Sherman, I'll I'll put some pictures on the Facebook page, but I tried to incorporate kind of that tune theme into the camouflage. So the, the camo patterns look like puzzle pieces, you know, kind of fun. I thought it kind of fit the the subject well to do it that way. So that's kind of what I've been doing. I really need to get back to my T34, but I wanted to build these tune tanks to number one, get a couple of kits actually finished, but also to have a couple of test beds for some weathering practice. Can, can I ask a question about the tune tank? Yeah. How can it be missing rivets? Rivets if it's a tune tank. I mean, it's missing wheels too. Are you replacing those? I'm just being silly. I'm sorry. I, I have no response. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just in the spirit of, you know, the rivets are oversized just fun, in the spirit of fun. Well, um, we, we've we got a, a full episode today. Uh, we're going to talk later on with uh, Matt McDougall of Duke's Models. That was a lot of fun to talk with him. But in the meantime, we have a lot of other stuff going. Where should we start, guys? We want to start with listener feedback or? Oh, well, hold on. I would like to double back to what I was talking about with the George Washington bust. So I looked it up just now, and I'm kicking myself because I should have known this. The bust is based on the Lansdowne portrait done by Gilbert Stewart of George Washington. And I should know that because it's okay. pretty much one of the most famous portraits of him. It's a, It was a full-size portrait. It was done for Lord Lansdowne who was the prime minister at the end of the American revolution that secured peace between our two, you know, the two countries and uh, it was mm-hmm. commissioned by him. So yeah, there we go. I should have known that. I feel like a fool. Don't hold it against me. There'll, there'll be a test later you, on. You guys. could have said Andy Warhol painted it and I'd have believed you. So it's okay. Of course it would have been painted with Campbell's soup labels or something, but. Well, one of the things we want to do uh, beginning with episode nine here. Uh, moving forward is we want to have some some regular content uh, by all of us. Doug, what's your, gosh, how do we want to say this, guys? What's it called, Doug? I don't have a, a name for it. Let's, people, I'm going to talk things like Star Wars and maybe sometimes other sci-fi. And just my opinion on, on what I think of things. We won't give spoilers on Mando right now, but we'll, we'll give you a chance to watch those things. Do you have a name for it? We'll call it, I mean, Scott wants to have said Star Wars Corner, which, you know, I guess is done. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I will bring bring in a kit that is on the bench that's covered with other stuff right now. But the kit that I'm working on is a speeder bike. Speeder bike takes me back when I was uh, in junior high and even early high school. Return of the Jedi had just come out, and I had to ride my bike everywhere I went, and especially to school in the morning. This was California. It wasn't really really cold. I thought it was, but I didn't know what I was talking about then. But I used to dream that my bicycle was a speeder bike. Man, I was gonna, I was gonna go, man, two hundred miles an hour down the road, just high enough to skim everything, and just, I'm at, I'm at school, right? That was my dream. I loved those things. Every time Star Wars came out, another movie came out, they would throw something new at us. Um, I'm talking about the original trilogy. I mean, obviously, the first movie, no one had seen anything like it before. The Empire Strikes Back, we got the AT-ATs, as well as other stuff, but the AT-ATs were kind of an in-your-face, a huge, new, cool tech we, we weren't familiar with, and it was awesome. And for me, Return of the Jedi, it was speeder bikes. And I loved those things, and I still do. And I, So that's my kit that's on the bench, and I want to, I want to own one someday, a real one that really works. 
Well, uh, TJ, what about your uh, regular segment? What are what are you going to focus on? Okay, my regular segment is going to be called. Oh, hold on. Yeah, you're gonna have to stop that. I literally had a, an idea in my mind, and it just disappeared. It just freaking disappeared. <laughs> Give me like ten seconds. It will come back. It was awesome too. Damn it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I had an awesome idea. I really did. I feel like such a, an, an idiot. That's it's all good. I, we don't have to. Doug necessarily started, have started to. talking about Star Wars, and my brain was like, "What? What Star Wars? Speeder speeder bikes?" <laughs> all right, got it. It came back to me. I just and I wrote it down this time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, TJ. Well, moving forward, uh, what's your segment going to be called, and what are you going to focus on? All right, so my segment is going to be called the Wargaming Workshop, because as if anyone's listened to this uh, podcast before, they would, it's pretty obvious that um, miniature wargame is, wargaming is like my thing. That's, that's my hobby. That's how I got into scale model building. And that's still what I continue to do more than anything else. I figured I could just talk about kind of like what I'm working on, what I've bought recently, and just, I don't know, just generally what I think about it. So I guess I can start with, I mean, I've been talking about my Space Marines for a really, really long time, as long as we've had this podcast. And then even before that, if you knew me before you started listening to this, I got pretty excited the other day because I got all of my painted models out and I put them all on my little photography table. And if you guys have seen my like finished uh, photographs that I put on the Facebook page, um, it's a, like a white background and it's actually really small, you know my little it's a little tiny table and i got really excited because i put them all out and i couldn't even fit them all on the table and i just beamed with pride because for a long time i was playing games with my friends with under unpainted models or partially painted models and i always felt bad because most of my friends i play with all have painted models and it's not like I am against painting models clearly because I like building and painting things. It's just, I felt like I couldn't push myself to do it for some reason. I haven't really figured out what I've really been pushing myself to like finish my space Marine army and have a fully like completed painted army, which is something I've, I've wanted for eight years for as long as I've, I've been doing this and putting all those table, all those models on my little table, even though it's, I'm not done by a long shot, but I don't know. I just was really happy and I wanted to take an actual good photograph of them, but since they couldn't fit on my table, I I couldn't. So I had to settle with a a crappier cell phone picture. So yeah, it's just kind of, I don't know. It's been kind of odd, I guess, really this whole year. And I don't know why I decided this year I would, I would paint all these models because I, looked at my painting log that I keep and I've painted, which I think it's now been 56 models so far, which is pretty good for me. I've never, I've never painted that many things probably ever, let alone in uh, not even a calendar year. Cause I still got almost a month, a little less than a month to go. So I'm hoping to add maybe like 10 more things. I don't, I, I haven't, I don't know. I'm taking the week off in between Christmas and New Year's for the first time in 20 years. So I plan on getting a lot done that week. 
66 models. Wow. Uh, Doug, I think that's about two decades worth for me. Yeah, probably me too. Well, you also have to remember, you know, one Space Marine model does not equal one 35th scale tank. So there is a, you know, a little bit of a difference. So yeah, sure, it's 56 models, but most of these individual models are small. I've done three tanks this year, which is probably the most I've ever done in a year too. But I haven't finished a tank since May... I think when I finished finish the uh, the Sherman, I think that's the last uh, non war gaming thing that I've I've done. Well, um, look forward to having those regular segments each uh, episode. Doug, do we have any listener feedback? I know we've got a whole bunch of hobby shop shout outs to go through. I, I think we're going to focus on the shout outs, but I do have a, a, an especially kind of a nice bit of feedback that we got. We actually got a piece of feedback from William Jordanger from Seattle, Washington. Actually was was uh, responding to a question we received from someone else. He said he wanted to write in response to one of the questions that we uh, were asked in the episode 8 listener mail. Jesse asked about a good way to simulate litter on dioramas, especially 187th scale, which is the same as HO scale in model trains. One of the best ideas I've heard is to use old candy wrappers, put them into a blender and chop them down. This way you get true colors of common litter. Another podcast you may be interested in is Willie's Scale Models, which covers craftsman models in HO scale. Thanks, William. That was uh, to Jesse, right? That was uh, Jesse's question that he's... We have so much feedback on the Hobby Shop shout out. Kind of shocked us because, I mean, we've had good feedback every time we've asked, but... This one was kind of massive. So we're going to jump right into that. Mark Ewing suggested Wonderland Models in Edinburgh, 47 years and still going strong. Let's see. Michael Libero, Master Grade Hobbies in Milford, Connecticut. Gumpla stuff, Mr. Paint. Michael is the owner. He's a great guy. Haven Hobbies in Elyria, Ohio. Gary Schmidt mentioned Hobby Rama in Stafford in Queensland, Australia. And Hobby Rama actually responded and thanked for the thanked him for the shout out. So that was kind of nice to see. Scott Michael suggests Esther's Hobby in Millville, Pennsylvania, and Hobby Express in Cranberry, Pennsylvania. Um, we got a Hale Wallace shout out for the Hobby Center in Ottawa, Ontario. Raziel Nelson, Anchorage House of Hobbies, one of the only hobby shops in Alaska. Richard Forzen, Hal's Hobby Warehouse in El Paso, Texas. Sean Vale Rhodes, shout out Denby Hobby Center in Newport News, Virginia. Great old school hobby store. Paul Hayward says Ben Franklin in Amherst, Ohio. Kyle Beaton, Galaxy Hobby in Plover, Wisconsin. Hiawatha Hobby in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. And Hobby Stop in Madison, Wisconsin. Kevin, <laughs> Brookhurst Hobbies in Garden Grove, California. I think that's their second shout out for those guys. Paul Hayward, Clearview Hobby and Slots in Lorain, Ohio. Ted Pendergrast, Spare Time Shop in Marlboro, Massachusetts. Let's see. I think that's the end of it. That was a lot. Thanks a lot, listeners. Keep those uh, hobby shop shout outs coming. We want to make sure and do our part to uh, support all the brick and mortar shops out there. Yeah, I think 2020 has actually been a little kinder to the hobby stores than maybe some other places, but we still want to do everything we can to support them and recognize those great shops that you guys use in your hometowns or wherever they're at. So appreciate the feedback, Posse. Okay, guys. Well, I'm happy to announce that Anthony Goodman of Goodman Models 
has uh, agreed to supply us with uh, a few more of his awesome super standing blocks uh, for some giveaways. We're still working on the details of contests that we can uh, give those away. Welcome back, uh, Goodman Models as a sponsor, and uh, you'll hear from them uh, later on in the episode. We also want to remind all of you listeners out there to listen to the sister podcast. They are on the bench. Dave Goldfinch and the guys uh, zeroing in. They're almost episode 100, doing great work down there. The Scale Model Podcast out of Canada with Stuart and Anthony and friends. And they are on episode 60, I believe. Plastic Model Mojo just dropped episode 26. And those guys are fantastic. Dave and Mike over in Kentucky. And we have a new podcast that we are excited to kind of add to our little group. It's called Just Making Conversation. So if you get a chance, uh, check that one out. It's an interesting podcast based out of the UK with Malcolm and James. Uh, Their last episode was talking about tools, and they have an episode that's coming up where they're going to discuss all types of paints. So check them out. Also, a reminder, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a few minutes and leave us a review, especially if you can give us a five-star review. It really helps other modelers to be able to find our podcast and listen to it when you do that. So appreciate it if you can take the time. Well, let's take a short break to hear from our sponsor, Goodman Models. Take it away, Anthony. Hey, this is Anthony from Goodman Models. You're listening to the Plastic Posse Podcast. This is the podcast for miniatures, Star Wars, science fiction models, and everything in between. And while you're listening in, working on your models, pick up a set of super sanding blocks tools that will help you sand with precision. Check them out at GoodmanModels.com and keep the glue to your sprue. All right, that's a great spot. Now it's time for our special interview segment with Matt McDougall from Dugues Models. I know you're going to really enjoy this, so here we go. Welcome into the interview portion of our program. TJ and I are joined today by Matt McDougall from Dugues Models. Uh, welcome, Matt. We're glad to have you on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Looking really forward to this. We're excited to talk to you. For those of you out there that don't know who Matt is, he has uh, the Dugues Models blog, uh, which is fantastic. He does kit reviews. He does musings. He does a lot of different things on there that, that's worth a look. He also has a Dukes Models YouTube channel that has over 1.3 million views, tons of great videos. Check that out. He's also a founding member of the Scale Modeler Critique Group. Matt, anything else that I'm missing from your resume there? I mean, the only thing I might add is I also have a Facebook page for Dukes Models that's pretty easy to find just by searching for Dukes Models. Well, let's talk about a Scale Modeler's Critique Group. Tell us a little bit about how that got started. Yeah, for sure. So back in, I think it was 2015, God, time flies. Um, I was getting a bit fed up with sort of the the usual state of, I guess, forums and Facebook groups and things like that, where it was really tough to get good, um, you know, good, solid feedback. And having worked in the, you know, creative professional space for years and years, uh, I was very used to, 
having a thick skin and basically seeking out feedback and really harsh feedback because it tends to make the work you're doing stronger if you really push it and question it. It got very tiring to post something onto a forum and see, oh, it looks great. Oh, it's your model. Oh, it's, you know, all that kind of not really feedback, just more sort of gentle affirmations. Me and a few other people got really into the idea of setting up a space where that wasn't the overall gist of what was going on. And it was more, no, let's push each other. No, let's question what we're doing. Let's find the flaws in our work and figure out ways to work around them. Let's investigate new techniques. Let's put a lot of the, I guess you could say the modeling dogma that gets passed around, you know, actually put it under the microscope and see if it holds up or not. And that all of that basically gave rise to the scale modelers critique group. Uh, definitely attracted a bit of a following right away. It also attracted a bit of hate right away. Both of those have basically uh, kind of carried on ever since. It's interesting. Yeah, some people just have a tough time with, I think, the concept of honest feedback. It's always been interesting to me to see the hate or see the, the people that always try to infiltrate the group and stir stuff up. Yeah, and it's, it's something that I, when I was not too far out of college and kind of getting established in my career, Dealing with things like feedback were definitely a bit of a challenge. I mean, there's that definite defensiveness of like, don't say what I'm doing is bad. But once you sort of separate yourself from the actual work and you look at it as, okay, this is battle testing. It's putting out there, figuring out what's wrong with it so you can learn from what you're doing and learn what's working and lean more into that. I think a lot of, for some reason, a lot of modelers haven't really put what they're doing at the bench to that same level of rigor that they might put to, you know, their work or honestly, even other hobbies like you play golf or if you mountain bike or if you do photography or whatever generally you're seeking to improve what you're doing somehow maybe it's you know lowering the score or take you know capturing this one photo in this one type of condition uh getting up this one obstacle whatever it might be but yeah ba basically it's it's weird it seems that for a lot of modelers the the idea of improvement and sort of i guess maybe a more rigorous approach to improvement is weirdly missing from the hobby you know, and you, you see it a lot and like, it's, it, you know, it's your hobby, do whatever, how, you know, as long as you're having fun, that's all that matters. And it's like, yeah, having fun definitely matters. There's definitely a, a balance of caring about it as a hobby. Like this is what we spend hours a week, hours a day doing because we want to do it. It, it has some importance in our lives for sure. And so I think it's, it's worth understanding that and not just being completely flippant about it, but at the same time. Balancing that out with, yeah, it is just a hobby. It is just, you know, our way to unwind after a day or whatnot. And so finding that little merging there and maybe putting a bit more rigor into it while still also being able to step back and realize, hey, this is just, I'm literally taking pieces of plastic and slathering chemicals on them that either melt them or stick to them. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what I'm doing. You know, and having that perspective, I think, lets you step a bit back and be like, okay, how can I slather those chemicals on there in a little bit better of a way or whatnot? That's a great point. TJ, how did you find SMCG? I'm, I'm interested to hear how you, how you uh, found the group and decided to join. Oh, man. You know, I don't even really remember. Maybe maybe from one of Will's videos. So then I was like, oh, I like Facebook. I'll go check it out. Uh, I, obviously, this is a hobby for me. And, you know, I don't do this for a living. But it doesn't mean I don't want to get better at it. I noticed that as, you know, I haven't been in, in modeling that long. But when as I got into, especially in social media, I did notice like, that's all you ever heard was, Oh, that looks great. And then it didn't always look great. 
you know, I think Scott, like you and I've talked about, I think like I just mentioned before we started recording, I like validation just like everybody else, but I also want someone to be honest with me. Like if it looks good, tell me it looks good. If it doesn't look good, tell me why. And that way I know to on the next one, not to do that or to do something different. So that's a big reason why I like to stay there. And plus, you know, everyone uses cuss words and no one really cares. <laughs> I, I, as as a construction worker by trade and with the mouth of a sailor i appreciate that because you know most other <laughs> modeling groups you can't really do that well at the risk of making uh, matt seem like we're ignoring him for a moment i found smcg at a moment where i was kind of having a, an epiphany as a modeler say so, you know what i'm either going to get better at this and stop making the same model over and over or I'm going to go by myself a set of golf clubs and take something else up. Matt, as a tribute to you, I, I feel like the group really inspired a search for me that involved tearing every every part of my model building sort of down to the ground and rebuilding it. Hopefully that's good for you to hear because it's, you know, and on top of that, that's how I met TJ and we've had a great friendship over hobbies and that came about because of SMCG as well. No, that, that's awesome to hear. And I, I think that uh, that goes to a lot of what I try to get at, especially in my blog, of the idea of really investigating and questioning why we do the things we do and why we build the things we build. And sometimes that, yeah, that can definitely lead to, you know, breaking down literally every single element of what you're doing and kind of rebuilding it from the ground up. And I think other times it can lead you to, you know, like, what if you take away this one thing that you kind of rely on all the time? You know, maybe like it's your go-to procedure for handling something. What if you throw that out the window and all of a sudden you have to figure out another way to get the same result or to get a, even a better result? And that, that kind of thing, that kind of experimentation and questioning can actually open up a lot of creativity and really help you understand the materials that you're working with better, which I think also means you can wield them more effectively. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Matt. I, I, I'd like to talk about, your, you know, you're kind of known for black basing. You know, I don't think you invented it or anything, but you've certainly um, brought it out in the forefront. It's one of your most viewed videos. But recently, that's kind of with you and your modeling. I've noticed that's been evolving as well, where where you've um, gone away from it in some circumstances in your paint work, but also you've kind of um, tweaked it and changed it. Yeah, I definitely didn't invent black basing. I think, if anything, I maybe uh, used my my copywriter side of my life to give it a snazzy name that stuck. I forget what it was. It was like dual diffusion paint. It was something very, very mealy mouth earlier. And I think black basing is just very, very stark and kind of sticks in people's heads a little better. But yeah, basically, I've been evolving that slowly over the past several builds you know, adding in different elements or maybe, you know, starting out with something not quite as black. So like a dark brown or a dark green, just depending on what's what's actually in play. And actually on the P40 that I'm working on right now, it's basically in the RAF tropical scheme. So Middlestone, Dark Earth and Azure. Middlestone is in that, you know, that family of lighter tan colors that just don't really go that well over black. They tend to shift colors in weird directions they, they kind of get muted out a little bit. It seems to take a long time to really cover very well. And so I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to start it out with like brown instead. And then I was like, well, the azure on the bottom is another problematic color because it's this very weird, like violety type of blue that has a very strong, you know, for lack of a better term, very strong flavor to it. Putting it over black also does weird things to it. 
And so that got me to thinking, okay, I'm going to put these over silver instead, which then means building things up in a different way, at least on the underside, which is where I'm at so far. That led me to basically doing some contrast work on top of the silver. So like RLM 76, like a light greenish blue, and then a darker blue for some tone and contrast in there with Azure on top. Got to that point. I was like, okay, I would typically stop here and be happy with it. But it was, I don't know, it looked a little bit fuzzy in ways. Um, It's kind of hard to describe. That led to me shading on top of that blended layer of Azure, bringing in more stuff and more shading, and then putting a blended layer of Azure on top of that. And so layer after layer after layer after layer. It Yeah, it was you know quite a bit of work, but I think in the end it got to a point where it's still maintaining that really cool tonal variation that you especially want in something like war-weary French P-40, you know, flying around in North Africa, probably not being babied by crew chiefs every day. Yeah, it was basically just going back and like, okay, you know, it's it's like uh, it's like an Iron Man three when he doesn't have the suit and he has to make do with just his intelligence and his wits essentially. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you take away black basing, you take away that thing that's sort of been the crutch for painting for the past five six years. What do you do now? In some ways, it's kind of terrifying. In some ways, it's really freeing because you get to experiment with different things you might not have tried before. Uh, by the way, uh, listeners, check out those videos on that uh, P forty that Matt's working on right now. We've been sharing some of that work on our Facebook page, or you can check out his uh, Facebook page, Dugs Models. Check out those updates. It's really cool, and that paint job's really coming to life. Why don't we talk about some of your uh, other projects that you're kind of currently working on? I know you've got a Mustang, and you've got a little Panhard armored car, T3485. Uh, What do you want to talk about first? Oh, goodness. Um, I got to figure out which one I want to talk about now. (laughs) What the hell? Let's let's start with the let's start with the Mustang because it's probably the furthest along of any of them. So yeah, I'm I'm working on Edwards P51D5 Mustang, so it's the early filletless version. It is all the way through paint right now. It's getting into weathering, and honestly, I've just been procrastinating that because I I hate the initial weathering stages over bare metal finishes. Once it gets into the exhaust stains and stuff like that, it's a lot of fun. But I feel like in the initial stages, it's really hard to get anything to actually stick and pop in a way that works. And so I've just literally been sitting on it for like two and a half weeks. And I finally pulled it out last night and started the initial phases of it. Overall though, that kit is a phenomenal kit. You know, everything about it, I've actually, I think I've said it sucks in reverse. Like when you pull the parts out of the box and the first thing that I always do whenever I start a new aircraft kit is I just like grab the fuselage bits and the wing bits and kind of like test fit everything and just kind of see what I'm in for. And when I test fitted that Mustang without anything else inside it, just like the wings and fuselage, it was super sloppy. Like the, the actual curve of the wing didn't match the curve of the wing root. It was it was all over the place. And it was like, ah, ah, hell, here we go. As I started building it and as I started adding elements into it, like the cockpit, the gear bays, you know, things like that, they actually help sort of reinforce the kit and shape it in certain ways. So like the gear bays force the upper wing to curve in a certain way to where it matches up with the wing root. And it actually gets better and better and better as you go which was really cool to see. And so like the last major thing I did with it was putting on the gear struts again, early on test fitting, like the little nubs for fitting the gear struts into the gear bay are, I swear they're like one millimeter and it's like a little triangle thing and it doesn't fit well at all. And I was sitting there fiddling with it. And then I realized like if I put it in, twist it at an angle and then twist it back the right way, it like locks into place perfectly. And probably honestly doesn't even need glue. It's that good of a hold. I think it's one of the things where Edward has really done a number on this kit. They don't talk about it in a way that really makes it obvious. 
you know, even in like the instructions, it's just like put the gear strut in. There's nothing like put it in this way and twist it this way and it'll lock in place and everything's great. And so I think a lot of people are maybe frustrated with this kit because it's awesomeness isn't immediately apparent. You kind of have to discover it as you're working through it. It's definitely one of those that like, if you put that time in, it really rewards you except for the upper cowl panel, which is still garbage and the worst part of the kit. <laughs> that That's interesting on a couple of different uh, levels. I've never built an Edward aircraft kit because all the early, early Edward releases were, I say an Edward kit. I mean, they were all like Hasegawa reissues, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Let's go back to weathering for a minute. You talked about the P-40 in uh, North Africa from a weathering perspective. I don't think that P-40F and the P-51D could be much further apart from each other. Oh yeah, they're definitely different animals. So the natural metal I'll be interested to see how you approach the weathering on that and an eighth Air Force bird in uh, Europe versus a North African subject there. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. I'm I'm still kind of working out how I want to do the P40. I've always found desert weathering to be particularly challenging just because it's all light tones, but if you actually look at the aircraft, the aircraft don't show that much evidence of what I would, you know, what I would say like life in the desert like you don't see sand on them or anything like that it's more a lot of fading a lot of repainting and a ton of exhaust staining i think maybe there's something with like the you know the sand and the dust of north africa just like sticking to various fluids and stuff that are constantly streaming out of the aircraft but i've got the additional challenge there with having a bunch of photos of french p40s but having no good photos of french p40s if that makes any sense they're all Except for like one or two, they're low res, they're from far away, they're highly contrasted. If they're color, they may be poorly colorized. So there's a lot of, basically a lot of guesswork going on. And I'm having to study a lot of like US units in the same area just to kind of get a sense of weathering patterns on that type of aircraft in general. But yeah, it's definitely going to be its own thing. Yeah, an 8th Air Force P-51 is not going to be as, especially as cruddy on the bottom, and it's going to be a lot more about fluid leaks and exhaust stains as opposed to environmental wear and tear building up on it. The year Panhard, our armored car, TJ and I were actually talking just before the call about that, you know, about how you'd done some science fiction building, but you also talked about in your latest blog how your armor builds have almost become not a science fiction subject, but more like a, a freelance, like you you kind of turn to them almost as a palate cleanser to have some fun with and not spend so much time on accuracy like you do on your aircraft. Yeah, so with with aircraft kits, I've definitely gotten into the thing of like heavy research, pulling out tons of reference photos, you know, even to the point of trying to find like this specific plane on this specific day flown by this specific person. It's really hard to do that with armor. I can find a bunch of interesting photos, but then finding the story behind the photos is always challenging. And sometimes matching up the specific photo like to, to the specific tank or specific truck or whatnot that I'm trying to build proves to be really difficult. And then you find out, oh, this has, you know, well, it has this type of gun on it instead of this type of gun. And then you go look for that gun and nobody makes that type of, you know, it's there's all kinds of like back and forth of finding the right variant, exactly what you want to do. And it very quickly becomes this rabbit hole that leads to me sticking armor build after armor build after armor build into drawers and just never touching them again. I've been finding that if I kind of veer away from that and just take them more as this is a cool shape and a cool vehicle and I just want to have some fun with it, you know, maybe making up some sort of alternate story or what ifs type story for it. I tend to get those done. I think there's there's a bit of a uh, 
kind of like the modeling version of writer's block for me with with the more heavily researched armor but yeah with that panhard for example so I, it's the icm panhard 178 and i started building it just because i you know I, I saw a couple builds online it looked really cool i have a big huge weak spot for weird french armored cars for some reason so that one piqued my interest i grabbed the kit started building it loved building it, it built really fast except for the uh you know the main armament the gun on the turret was just garbage I looked around briefly for like a, you know, some sort of metal replacement, nothing out there that I could find because it's, it's an esoteric French armored car, not a German thing. Happened to look over uh, at the, at the side of my bench. And I have like a, kind of like a tool cabinet where all the uh, Tamiya and guns paints live. And I had a metal Bushmaster chain gun barrel sitting there from another build that I hadn't touched. And it was like, I wonder if this will fit. And so I tried it and sure enough, it fit. So now it is a World War II French armored car with a modern chain gun on it. That basically blew all accuracy prospects out of the water. So then I just said, okay, well, I'm going to do my own camo, paint it, you know, with like a blue on blue camo. Yeah, let's make the turret orange. You know, why not? And that's leading me down now that this whole rabbit hole of like building a story around this weird, silly little car where now I'm thinking like, maybe I'm going to do something like a, you know, command and conquer red alert type of situation and just have fun with it and bring in some other vehicles and some figures and who knows. <laughs> so I, I've, I've spun it way beyond what I originally intended it to be, but uh, it's definitely been a lot of fun. Cool night shift. When he joined us, he kind of made the comment that the more you get concerned with historical accuracy, the less fun you're going to have on a project. And I think that's really, really true. It's bor- certainly borne out by what you just mentioned. Yeah. I, I think in some instances it works like on the, so earlier this year I built a, uh, a giant 132nd scale A6 intruder. That thing took forever, but I had a blast doing it. It was extremely heavily researched, like down to the, you know, figuring out the uh, the exact type of armament loadouts that they would carry on these, basically surface patrols they would do looking for the Iraqi Navy, which I was surprised to find out that Iraq had a Navy when I was doing the research. But it was, you know, it was like, oh, they had this specific type of anti-ship missile and they didn't use the, uh, they didn't use harpoons because, Apparently, something about the way that harpoons target made friendly fire in the Gulf a very, very real possibility. And so they were banned from using them. So they used these other things instead, which were really janky. And it was just this whole like deep history, really fascinating thing to study and then to replicate. But yeah, doing that on every single build is a huge pain. Something I always say whenever the, uh, you know, whenever the Red Arrow Brigade comes out on a specific kit and it's like, well, the, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong and this thing has. This access panel is one foot in the wrong direction and, you know, all that kind of stuff. My basic rule is if I would not have noticed the inaccuracy or whatever it is, you know, just in my normal course of research, if, it, if I only notice it because somebody brings it up on the internet, it is completely my choice whether or not to care about that. Yeah, the P40 I'm working on, Trumpeter made the, uh, the upper, you know, the upper cowl weirdly bulged and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be flatter than that. It's like, okay. That's, you know, five minutes of the sanding stick to fix, you know, but I'm not about to go and like lengthen the fuselage by a few scale inches. Like it's, it's not, it's, that's not the kind of thing I'm going to waste my time on. That's the, that's a great way to ensure that I never finish that build. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Panhard. I'm, I'm looking real, you know, forward to seeing where that goes. You're also, um, a part of our group build for the T3485, uh, What's your experience been with that, and what do you have planned for the paint on that model? Yeah, so I was uh, I was really hoping to get that done yesterday uh, and kind of finish it up, at, you know, heading into a weekend, but that just did not happen. And I've basically been kind of putting it together 
off and on during work days, kind of like during meetings and stuff like that, when I can use that to keep my hands busy so I don't get all fidgety and I can actually pay better attention to what's going on. But, but uh, I made the, maybe the, uh, maybe the stupid decision to put photo edge fenders on it, which has definitely increased the workload by probably about two times what it would be if I just thrown the kit together. Yeah. But it looks, it, you know, it's one of the T34s look cool, all battered up. I think it's, I think it's been worth it. Yeah. Getting it built. Uh, it's a, it's a great kit. Again, fight, fighting all the photo etch has been a, uh, a challenge though. I think I dropped about half of the little, you know, there are various little like tie downs and things like that that go on it. I think I've easily dropped half of those on the, on the floor and, you know, probably, probably spent at least a third of the build on my hands and knees on the floor looking for them. I, I really, that's called photo etch. <laughs> yep. I, I really need to figure out a better solution, but I'm not about to do that thing where you like, you know, clip something to your collar and then to the edge of the desk. Like that's not happening. I don't know what at this point I'll, I'll, I'll probably just keep getting down on the hands and knees and say it's good for flexibility. <laughs> Not sure how you're going to finish yours, but I'm about 85, 90% through mine and mm-hmm. just about ready to prime it. I went the more out of the box, you know, way. There is some photo etch on it, but I didn't. I decided not to go with fenders. What are you uh, thinking as far as paint scheme? So for paint scheme, I'm thinking um, I have a plan for a Soviet slogan on the side, but it's going to be my own design for that. It'll be revealed in good time, and I'm sure it'll be kind of the thing that'll get a lot of people uh, kind of stomping mad. So that'll be fun. <laughs> I, I love throwing in uh, little elements like that that you may not notice at first or that may be like inside jokes or whatnot. So I figure having something kind of snarky and Cyrillic on the side of a turret would be a lot of fun. <laughs> and then because it's not really like a historical tank at that point, it's more, you know, I'm building more of like a representative beat up T-3485. I'm going to probably do MRP's 4BO, but I'm probably going to kick it up with some various other greens, like their protective, you know, their Soviet protective green. Just yeah. because by itself, 4BO is a really boring color. I didn't know it was possible to get more boring than all of drab, but I think 4BO definitely hits it. <laughs> yeah, definitely throw a few more things into it. TJ, you're you're going to do your build with the photo edge fenders as well, right? Yeah, I am. I've never built a, a T34, so I was looking forward to this. And of course, I'm bringing up the rear as far as construction <laughs> goes. I, shit, it was probably even my idea to have everyone build this, and I'm like the only one that hasn't done it. Yeah, I'm just... I'm going with the fenders. I've never done photo etch fenders before, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. So I'm glad you did it first, Matt. Yeah. The, now I know that it's going to probably suck, but <laughs> be worth it in the end. Yeah. The, I I only do them if I'm going to beat the hell out of them. If I'm going to just build like straight fenders, I that's too hard to do with photo etch. I've, I've I had fun watching people suffer through like the uh, you know folding the piano hinges around for the front fender, and it's like no. <laughs> I'm, I'm using the fenders so i can have that part ripped off and i can have it all bent up you know bent out of shape and everything i'm not using it to perfectly recreate hinges and photo etch that that's not the hobby i'm in speaking of doing things to piss people off i i would be remiss not to mention your fetishizing the enemy article yes. from like 2015 i think yeah i just pulled it up i would like to thank you for that personally because <laughs> i that's probably one of the first things of yours that i read and it was like, yes, I'm so glad I'm not the only one that thinks like this. I was like, there's other people out there that recognize that this is kind of weird. Oh, I'm so glad. I mean, do you still get crap about that? I would imagine you, you probably do. Oh, yeah. All the time. I mean, the yeah. hate was real. <laughs> yeah. And just, just for, for any <laughs> listeners who, who may not be familiar with this, basically, it was me questioning why, essentially, why World War II German subjects are so popular in the hobby. 
to like literally a ridiculous point. Like if you go look at even just kit selection, much less what people build and buy and build and ATSTs with German crosses on them that get, you know, it's like, it's all over the place. And it kind of, I think it was honestly the start of my whole odyssey of kind of asking why in terms of the hobby, you know, why are we doing this? Why is this this way? Through a lot of the responses, I think ultimately a lot of people just don't think all that hard about their subject choices and they just think, oh, that one looks cool. I'll build that. And it's, it was, it's funny because a lot of the responses were along that, the lines of like German stuff just looks cooler. You know, all the allied planes are boring. And it's like, have you, have you actually stopped and looked at like (laughs) the schemes of different P-51s or P-47s in the war and like all the different colors, all the different nose art. It's crazy. It's all over the place. And then, I mean, honestly, I look at like Luftwaffe aircraft and it's like, okay, three different RLM colors and some yellow. Cool. It's kind of variations of that over and over and over and over again. And granted, there's a lot of variety in it, and that's great. It's definitely not like the RAF where it's pick your one of three schemes they use throughout the war and that's it. Yeah, there's so much emphasis on that. And, you you know, it's like, God, I've been trying to learn how to do uh, how to do figures lately. And you want to talk about a place with a German fetish, man. Oh, yeah. There it's like, you know, I I would love like I would love to build a, uh, you know, a couple of different figures from like the U.S. Civil War or things like that, like. I would love to do a William Sherman figure. It'd be great. Can't find one, but you can find every single Confederate general. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I still, I definitely still get all kinds of crap about it. You know, like I, like I said, where a lot of people just don't maybe think about what they're building all in that level of depth. You know, they get, maybe get kind of offended thinking that, oh, just because I build all this German stuff all the time doesn't mean I'm a Nazi. It's like, well, no, (laughs) I'm saying that, but it's interesting that that's what you build all the time. But then... (laughs) You know, then there are some people where you get into stuff and it's like, you know, I had one comment where it was like, well, the Nazis just didn't finish the job. And it's like, whoa, holy shit. Okay. <laughs> that is, <laughs> that's maybe why you're building all that stuff. It was definitely uh, eye-opening and it continues to be eye-opening because I still get comments on that probably like once a month, even though it's five years old. Yeah. <laughs> it was really thought provoking. And, and look, I don't think you were like you said, making making aspersions more than just sort of bringing it up in a thoughtful way. Like, let's talk about that. Let's think about it. Mm-hmm. I build German subjects too. I think a lot less than your average armor modeler, but I personally, you know, this is, I'm not saying anyone out there should think the way that I do. I personally have a real problem with SS units and I choose not to model them. Yeah, I'm the same way. Anyway, the, my point is, is it was very thought provoking. I think it was great. And a lot of your blog posts, I think, tend to kind of question not just historical subjects, but maybe going back to what you uh, said at the start of our our conversation, questioning why we do things from a modeling perspective. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to question what you do if you want to get better, if you want to think about things in a different way. Yeah. And I mean, I I guess one one of the ways that I've figured out over my years on this planet that my brain works is once I can figure out sort of like how something works and kind of the, you know, maybe the properties behind it, I tend to use things like Photoshop or something like that, where it's like you figure out kind of, okay, here's it's, here's how the thoughts work behind it. Here's how to use it properly. But it totally applies to paint too. Like once you understand the properties, once you understand how it sprays, how it reacts to certain things, you know, how it covers, how it sands, what it can't do, what it can, then you can make much more informed choices about what you're going to use. I think with a lot of, you know, things like Vallejo Primer, I think people just haven't ventured beyond it or they ventured beyond it once with something that took them out of their comfort zone where like, I'm uncomfortable and went back to it as opposed to like, I'm always 
poking holes in whatever I use. So it's like, if something comes along that's better than MRP, yeah, I'll jump to it in a heartbeat. You know, I love guns, Mr. Surface or 1500, but I still order bottles of other primers just to try them out and see, Hey, maybe there's others out there that are equal to, or better than it that I just haven't experienced yet. And so that, that leads to, uh, I get, I get a steady stream of interesting packages from interesting countries because of that. It's, it's definitely good to sort of keep those options open. For primers, I'm actually a huge fan of the MRP Fine Surface Primers. I use the goons a little bit, Mr. Surfacer here and there, but I love the way that the MRP Fine Surface Primer lays down and works good. But I know a lot of people like the Badger Steinal Res. Mm-hmm. But like you said, that comes from experience and trying different things. and my experience at living at 4,500 feet above sea level in a high desert and very, very low humidity is going to be completely different than your experience in an area that's got a lot more humidity than where I'm at. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, there are always allowances up to me. Like, I like MRP's fine surface primer, but honestly, it has a weird, like, hesitant feeling in the airbrush to me. It's nothing I can even, like, quantify. It just, it feels like it, it wants somebody to, like, shove it out of the airbrush as opposed to kind of flowing out. And so just because of that, I, I, I find myself not using it quite as much because I just don't have the same feel for it. But even just any given aircraft I build, I'll probably use three different primers just depending on what the, you know, what the situation is. And like, yeah, if I have to get down a hole, I'll use Steinal Res because it'll level out, whereas lacquer primer will dust because of all the air interference. Yeah. And see what I love about the MRP for, for my process is it's a very linear application. So you start around your model. And you put on a very, very light coat, give the surface some tooth. Mm -hmm. And literally, as you go from one area of the model to the next and you progress, and then you circle back around and start your second layer. I always put a drop of of the goons leveling thinner in there. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to sit there and just watch it level out. Like it's just beautiful satin finish every single time. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely good stuff. It's it's just, it's, and I'm pretty sure it has to do with me working in a garage in Texas, which has yeah. it's amazing uh, different climate implications throughout the year. But yeah, for some reason, there's that weird hesitancy with the air, with the MRP stuff in the airbrush. And honestly, it may just, because I only have the one bottle, so it may just be that one bottle and maybe the formula has changed a bit over time. Well, and you, you have different weapons on your bench than I do. I know you are a dedicated Iwata man, and I am a 100% Badger man. They're both good tools, but the Badgers have a different approach. Mm -hmm. In general, they use looser tolerances and they kind of are a lot more forgiving where the Iwatas, I think, are a little bit more like fine surgical devices. Maybe the fact that I'm spraying through Badger brushes and you're using Iwata brushes, that might be the difference you're you're alluding to. Oh yeah, it totally could be. Like I've sprayed Badger brushes before. I've also sprayed, um, you know, Harder and Steenbeck and things like that. And I've definitely found that different paints seem to be happier living in different airbrushes. Like I, I've never been able to get life color to spray worth a damn through an Iwata at all. It's it's not the best paint anyway, to be honest. But it all kinds of tip dry issues and things like that. And then you stick it in a harder and a steam back, and it sprays fine. It's you know it's like it, you may as well be spraying Tamiya until it actually hits the sur- hits the surface and then fish eyes like crazy. You know the actual spray experience coming out of the the H and S is great, but then you put mrp in an hns and it's like spitting all over the place and it can't keep anything straight yeah i definitely think that the you know different brands and even different airbrushes within the brands have completely different spray properties and it's going to be you know that's going to definitely impact i think your paint choices and what you like going through those airbrushes 
I, I'm a huge fan of MRP, but a lot of the modelers that I know, and they're good modelers, they don't like it. They don't like that process that you have to use where you lay on thin, translucent layers and build up opacity over time. And I probably have 10 or 15 bottles of MRP that I've been given as gifts because they didn't like how it sprayed. But a, a, a paint that TJ and I are becoming more and more fond of is the AK Real Colors. Have you used those and do you like those paints? I have a very complicated relationship with the AK Real Colors. I actually did some tests with them for the P40 that I'm working on right now. And the colors were just way, way out compared to uh, the other options. So like the middle stone almost looks like caramel, which is frustrating. But at the same time, in their armor line, I love a lot of the colors they have there. Like they have a light green that I used on an AML 90 a while back. That is just this like, it's it's weird because it's very vibrant, but it also doesn't look fit like fake vibrant at the same. It looks like something you would expect to see in like a camouflage color. It's just a very vibrant one. And that that sort of color density they bring to the table is fascinating. And I find myself, especially for armor projects, drawn to them more and more. Like I've got a Gepard from Tacom sitting in its base coat of, I think it's like their NATO green maybe or something to that effect. And I just love the color. One day I'm going to get back to it and actually finish the camouflage on it. But yeah, I definitely think they, they seem, at least from my experience so far, with their color fidelity, they seem to be doing better on the armor than they do on the aircraft. TJ, you're, you're a huge fan of their colors for armor as well, right? Oh, yeah. Except for, I mean, it sucks too because I love working with their paint, but their British colors are not good <laughs> at all. They, they're not even anywhere. They're not even, they're not in the same ballpark. They're not even playing the same sport to use that old analogy. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame when they promoted originally all this, and I'm sure you remember, like it was, oh, we had Mike Starmer help us with British colors and then after that book comes out, he comes out, I was like, yeah, I told them things and they didn't use any of the things that I said. So I'm kind of disavowing all of this because I got the SEC two Brown and it looks, it looks like baby poop. Essentially it's, <laughs> it's, it's not SEC two Brown is an ugly color to begin with, but it's a certain type of ugly color and right. they did, they, they weren't even close. It's yeah. I don't know, but they're olive drab number nine slash number 22 is hands down my favorite American olive drab color. Yeah. Like I know I've sprayed their, I've sprayed their uh, Kark tan before, like the, the U S sand color. And that is my favorite far and away of that color. I mean, it's for some reason, most companies don't seem to get it right. It either looks like flesh or something uh, at the end of the day. And they nail it pretty much hands down. Yeah, that is, a, I have that one too. Um, One of the, tabletop games i play is uh, like a world war three type one so i have a desert based u.s marine corps army and i use their kark tan on it it's uh it's pretty awesome so here's another thing i wanted to ask you i saw that you got some new miniatures from bold miniatures i think that's the mm -hmm. name of the company i see that you've you're like you seem to be doing a lot of these larger scale figures like how do you find working with those compared to working on a tank or working on an airplane because I, I, me personally i i don't really do airplanes but i do a lot of armor and then i do smaller scale wargaming type stuff and i'm kind of in, i'm personally a little intimidated by the larger scale miniatures like that because it's it seems like it's i don't know a different skill set altogether it feels like it anyways yeah that's <laughs> that's definitely what i'm finding so i i, I think there's a 
I think it's a difference between maybe between like mechanical and organic. Like I, I have a lot of challenges trying to get my head around the figure painting process, or at least the processes that are out there that I've seen, you know, and especially like the acrylic brush paint, build up layers, build up different shadows and stuff. I'm trying to learn it, but it's, you know, it's kind of like, again, back to that whole, like my mind works best when it figures and when it can, when it can figure out what sort of the, the rules of the game are and then go from there. And I'm still figuring out those rules. So right now it's very much a uh, finding my way in the dark and hating all the stuff I'm doing, but kind of going through that necessary figuring it all out stage. My goal eventually is to get to the point where I can start tackling things like object source lighting and stuff like that, that I think, you know, some of the things that are really cool on some of the better figures out there, that's just going to take a while. As, as far as the size of the figures, honestly, it comes down to I don't have my I don't have the confidence in my ability to paint faces that are smaller than I can see. I figure the the larger the palette I have to work with, the uh, the more room I have to work as well. So that's my logic. It it also means that there's a lot more that I probably have to do to really pull it off. So <laughs> there there's that downside as well. You could also adopt Scott's rule of figure painting, which is every figure has to have a helmet. <laughs> I love that rule. Yeah, I, I would I would build nothing but like Boba Fett's and Darth Vader's if I could. <laughs> I'm finding with TJ's influence, I'm pretty fascinated with some of the wargaming figures. It's definitely Space Marines with helmets are, are the order of the day. I mean, at least sunglasses, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no eyes, yeah. ever. <laughs> I'm working on a I'm working on a uh, on a nuts planet uh, sniper figure right now. I decided to use some of those Archer eye decals. I don't know if those are more of a pain in the ass than trying to paint eyes or less, but I somehow, in the process of putting two of these little decals on, managed to lose six of them. <laughs> <laughs> because they come round and you have to cut them to be like the right shape to like shove an eye in the... I don't know why they didn't just make them the right shape to begin with, but that's what it is. And so, yeah, by the time you're done, because this is like a 124 scale figure. So the eyes are, you know, maybe like 0.75 millimeters by 0.25 millimeters. Like that's the size of the decal. And you have to cut it to that because the carrier carrier film is all over the decal sheet. They're not separated or anything. You pick that up with the tweezers and all of a sudden, like, because of quantum effects, I guess, it just winks out of existence. Then it's like, well, where'd that go? And uh, I, I have since found three of them on my desk, <laughs> but they're so tiny that like once they leave the tweezers, good luck finding them. How do you find those decals? Because I, I have a, I'm trying to like jump into that bust painting and larger scale uh, mm-hmm. figures. I, I have a a one twelfth scale um, George Washington bust. I just got, I think Fer Miniatures makes it. Mm-hmm. I'm a big George Washington fan, being from Virginia, so it's one twelfth scale. So he's got pretty sizable eyes yeah. and it's essentially a miniature version of a portrait done of him and at the end of his presidency. So it's like, that's kind of the focus. And I was think I didn't think about the, those eye decals, but now that you mention it, I think I'm gonna have to check them out. How, like, how do you find them? Or, or I just, I literally, okay? I, I literally just got, just got pissed one day and typed in like one twenty fourth eyeball decals. <laughs> it popped up, but, uh, <laughs> But they're actually, they're made by uh, Archer. So the, the people who did all the dry transfers for tanks for years. And years. Brute force Google searching. Yep. I love it. <laughs> are they, um, are they wet transfers or are they the, the dry transfers like they do? They're straight up decals. Okay. 
And I mean, honestly, I think for things like larger busts and stuff, they would be amazing. It's just, it's those, those tiny ones for like the 124 scale. I just think maybe it's like just small enough that it's very difficult to work with. But yeah, if you had an actual room to see them as you cut them and things like that, it'd probably be a lot easier. Okay. I'll have to look into those. Let's talk science fiction modeling, Matt. I know you've done some of it, but yeah. So I've done a, I've done a few in the past. Um, I did like a, a tiny little one one forty fourth X wing a couple of years ago, which was actually a lot of fun. Uh, Bandai did a great job with those things. And I did recently a uh, a wave. Oh goodness, I can't remember the Japanese name, but it's basically it's a BattleTech uh, Warhammer. I did it as a uh, repurposed leaf blower mech. Had a bit of fun with that. Again, kind of going away from references and canon and things like that. My big thing with sci-fi is there's a lot of stuff I would love to build. There just are not kits of, or if there are kits, they're like weird tiny sizes that I'm not interested in. I think like that's my big problem with the Bandai stuff is it's all 172nd scale. It's like, you know, give me a 132nd scale X-Wing and I'll, I'll build the hell out of that all day long. So that's been, that's always been kind of my frustration is finding like good kits and large enough kits that I want to build. Like I'd love to build a Babylon 5 Star Fury at some point, but I doubt I'll ever see a good kid of that thing. I've I've got a solution for you after the <laughs> recording. Well, let's talk. All right. <laughs> but yeah, my, my uh, I actually do have a potential sci-fi project uh, kind of lingering out in the distance. Earlier in the week, or it might have been last week even, I ordered the new Marshall Speeder from, is it Merlin Models, I believe? And it's a giant 112 scale speeder of, uh, or model of a, uh, Cobb Vance speeder from the first episode of the Mandalorian second season, that one that's Anakin's that's pod awesome. racing engine. And it's, yeah, the, the thing's like 20 inches long. And it's like, okay, that's, that's a size I can have fun with. And so that should be getting here sometime before Christmas. I'm going to make a judgment on where that goes in the build order, kind of when it arrives. So it might be a thing where I'm like, I'm doing this today. I'm priming it right now. Or it might be, you know, after a couple other projects, definitely looking forward to seeing what that looks like in the flesh. That's very cool. I saw that kit. I'm a huge Mandalorian fan. I think most people are. It's really Mm -hmm. awesome. I think it's kind of saved my Star Wars fandom in some respects. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's. I actually watched the latest episode last night, The Siege, I think it was, and it was like, you know, the the chase scene in that is the best chase scene I've seen in Star Wars probably since Return of the Jedi. Just seeing them bring these things in so effortlessly, like great deep pulls from minor, minor Star Wars stuff, like games from the 90s. And they don't even mention it they just kind of like bring it out and don't talk about it and just part of the world and the, the people who maybe don't follow the references as carefully still enjoy it but then you know those of us out there who know that kind of stuff like there was a scene where uh, the mandalorian started spinning in his ship as he was fighting some tie fighters and at first it was like oh haha but then he just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and so it was like oh wait that they're making fun of anakin and the whole let's try spinning thing from episode one it's like man <laughs> this this show just goes it yeah it, it just pulls all kinds of stuff out. So you mentioned large-scale figures, um, something that TJ's a huge fan of, and uh, we actually had Lincoln Wright on our last episode uh, talking about this as well. What about Machine and Krieger? I know a lot of those are like 120th scale. So my only issue with Machine and Krieger stuff is the little like person-sized mech units that are available. I just The design aesthetics of those just don't really do it for me. There are a bunch of the other things in that world that I find interesting, but maddeningly, all the ones that I find interesting are like $300, <laughs> basically impossible to find. It's something I would definitely be interested in getting into because I like the look of it, you know, again, outside of like kind of the, the blobby mech suits. I like the look of other stuff in that world quite a bit. Falk and the Luna Diver and stuff like that. 
Yeah, and like there was a uh, was it the camel? I think it's like a sort of like a transport type thing that I thought was really interesting looking. And then there's like the industrial mechanic and stuff, which is kind of along the same lines of like, that's really cool and really expensive. And I don't know if I have it in me to tackle a resin kit of this thing. And again, find, finding that mix of like, I'm interested in this subject and it's a proper size and it's, you know, not going to be a massive nightmare to build. It's kind of finding that sweet spot. And I don't seem to find it all that often. Have you bought a industrial mechanica kit? I have not. I, I It's one of those, I, I keep looking at them and then, you know, it's like, there is, is it the is it the rook maybe or another yeah. another like a whole thing named after chess pieces. The rook is all, that's an awesome looking thing. Yeah, not every time every time I look, it's <laughs> it's like out of stock. Maybe one day I'll find one. I'm also kind of like in the same boat. Like I, every couple months, I go look at their web shop and I'm like, uh, I mean, I really want one of these, but I don't know if I can justify paying what they want. I know they're yeah. good for something. I'm probably not gonna do justice to i've i bought one thing i bought a 135th scale sasha the welding girl figure from them mm-hmm. and it's it's beautiful it is it's so well cast it's it's fantastic i haven't painted it yet but yeah i, I i've looked at that rook multiple times and yeah i mean I, i've gone so far as to put it in the shopping cart only to like chicken out <laughs> <laughs> right before i'm like yeah should i send this to paypal no 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 yeah that's the thing like i i love the i love the uh the very functional look of those things and i wish that the gundam universe was more in that direction because i look at a lot of those and it's like i just i can't you know giant mech with wings i you know like and like feathers like i, I can't do it <laughs> What I like about Gundam is I like the bad guys. The Zakus look like Russian tanks. You know, they they look like they're cast and made in the the tractor factories of the future. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's because I I grew up. I didn't actually ever play BattleTech, but I was familiar with it. And like my, you know, I had an older brother who played it a bit. I had a bunch of the miniatures, and I had you know like books with like the you know the line drawings of them and stuff. And I just got so enamored with kind of that aesthetic, which is you know definitely a lot chunkier and more like. I don't want to say realistic because we're still talking about, you know, 200 foot tall walking robots with guns that are basically defying the laws of physics, but uh, they look more functional. And I, I've, I guess I've just like attached to that aesthetic more than the Gundam aesthetic. And so of course, then they ran into like copyright issues, I believe. And <laughs> now we're never going to see uh great kits of those things come out. Let's talk about the Tamiya 148 scale P38 kit. <laughs> Oh man, the P38. I have one ready to go. It's coming up after the Edward Mustang gets completed. I'm looking super forward to it, and I'm hoping that I can stop calling it the P47F, which I, I was doing for quite a while. <laughs> That's what we're going to pop TJ's aircraft cherry with, is that kit. From everything I've heard, it's amazing. I mean, I, I've looked at it multiple times in the box. The only thing that I think throws me off a little bit is um, I have a massive hatred of the trapped propeller design that they use that well, basically every company uses with uh, kits with those big propeller spinners on them just because I hate dealing with it. And so I've bought some, I think they're quick boost aftermarket props and spinners to replace just so I can have that as an option instead. But other than that, everything else looks top notch on those things. It's a beautiful kit. There's no doubt about it. Um, I look forward to seeing what you do with it. The way it's designed to go together, it's typical to me. It- yeah. I love how they actually put thought into how things go together. The uh, I haven't built the, the Lightning yet either, but like they're, they're big Corsairs. The way that they have, instead of like, you know, just kind of like the typical aircraft fuselage wings, stick them together. The Corsairs actually have these like, sp- they're almost like fangs in the front of the fuselage. 
and they just like bite into the wing spar on the on the actual wing, and it, everything just locks in place, and it's amazing. It's like wow, why can't every aircraft be like this? And then you know, then you work on like a trumpeter P forty F, and it's like why can't every aircraft be like that to me, a Corsair? TJ, I'm just talking, talking, talking. <laughs> you're way Scott. I've told you a million times, man. You're way better at it than me. <laughs> See, Matt, that's a that's a true friend. He allows his <laughs> his his motor mouth buddy to just continue to talk and talk and talk and never shut up. No, this is this is great. Okay, I'm going to ask you the game show question here. Oh, I know you. I know. I know you've got an opinion on this. What are some aircraft kits that Matt really, really wants and uh, haven't made yet? Really want and haven't made yet. Ooh. Or or they have crappy versions yeah, or the, and you want yeah, a better yeah. one. I want a okay. I want a new tool AH1W Super Cobra along the along the similar quality to what Academy just did with their AH1Z. I would love to see that. I want a 135th Apache. For some reason, there's not one. I, it boggles my well, no, there is, but it's terrible. So it just boggles my mind that doesn't exist. I want a new tool 148 scale or 132nd, honestly, B26 Marauder. So I know that ICM just did the Invader, but I want I want the Martin B26, the one that actually Yeah, the pretty one. Yeah, the yeah. The pretty one with the uh with you know all the swoopy curves that served in the European theater. I would love to see a um I want Trumpeter to go past the intruder and I want them to build a 132nd scale EA6B Prowler. I can't believe they didn't. That seems like just leaving money on the table because they've already done like 90% of the engineering necessary for it. Oh, and I want a, uh, I want a, a good line of 132nd scale Hellcats. The Hasegawa ones are old. The Trumpeter ones have all kinds of shape issues that even I can't ignore. Seriously, the only good, <laughs> the only good Hellcat in 48th or larger is the Edward kit, and I know you've you built a whole bunch of those as paint mules and mm-hmm. otherwise. Yeah, but you've, if you build a Hellcat, you've got to do the lapped panels on the fuselage correctly, and yep. you've got to get the grin correct. Yeah, and and nobody nobody grabs those except you know Edward did a pretty good job on that kit. So yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, they're just, they're just leaving they're leaving stuff sitting around with that. Tamiya San, you've already done the engine. Please give us a one thirty second scale Hellcat. I, I, I just want them to get honestly at this point. I just want them to give us a new one thirty second scale anything. It definitely seems like for a while there they forgot about one forty eighth scale. Like you know they did the IL two, and then nothing until the F fourteen, and now it's been like boom. Here's all these one forty eighth scale things, and they've definitely feels like they've backed away from one thirty second a bit. Like the the last stuff they've come out with have been you know additional. Mustang and Corsair kits, which are, you know, great to have, but, uh, you know, it, it definitely feels like, I think, I think maybe the mosquito when it launched hurt them a bit. I think maybe yeah, a lot of people said they wanted it. And then they realized that a one thirty second scale mosquito is huge and expensive and kind of backed away from it. And I think that might've taken a bit of the fire out of Tamiya, but I, I would love to see them get back into the one thirty second scale game and give us, you know, Maybe a P forty seven, for example. Yeah, we can hope, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say as of uh, November twenty first, twenty twenty, my prediction is their next one thirty second scale kit's gonna be an upscale of their uh, BF one hundred nine G six. They have a pattern, and in addition to the pattern, they also know that the one hundred nine G six would sell yeah. a billion copies. Yeah, I, I think a one. I mean, I think it's it's 
a definite possibility. I, I know that everyone talks about like they should do a hurricane. It's like they're never going to do a hurricane on their second scale. I'm sorry. They, they might do it. They, I could see them doing a Spitfire Mark one or something like that, but they're going to do whatever they do. It'll be like one of like the top, you know, top five most popular aircraft kind of things. So yeah, I think it'll be 109, 47, something along those lines. Something that will, will guarantee not only sell, but sell multiple copies uh, to the same person. What I'm curious is I want to know what they get to next in 148 scale jets. I know they don't do them all that often, but they're coming off the F-14, which is, was a huge seller, I have to assume. I'm, I'm guessing we'll probably get some sort of like F-14B or F-14A plus kind of thing at some point out of them. But after that, you know, it's like, you know, could they maybe consider doing a, a Super Hornet or a Phantom or something and just blowing the world open with that? They could own the modeling world if they would do if they would do a definitive 148 scale A10. Yeah, De- that would be definitive huge. and correct. Yeah, even I'd buy that one. I have like two airplanes. Are there any good A10 kits that are <laughs> that are reasonably accurate and not blended between every version? I mean, I I believe the consensus out there is that the best are the Hobby Boss and Italeri kits. And honestly, when Italeri gets included in the list of best kits, you know the, the, the selection's not that strong. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my gosh. It's like, I mean, their, their kits are fine, but they're not good. <laughs> it's like I, I've built two of their 104, those big 104s now. And, yeah, they're, they've got problems. They build fine, but I would not consider, the, you know, that any, you know, it's very easy to do better than what they've done. And if any of our listeners haven't seen those builds, Matt's 132nd scale starfighters are just fantastic. The paintwork on them is just stunning. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got another one that I'm going to build at some point because, I don't know, I guess I have like Italy Stockholm Syndrome or something. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Matt, you're, you're hitting these things out of the park. <laughs> so on your YouTube channel, uh, Matt, I mean, it looks like you've got almost 100 videos on there. You know, you've got a lot of step-by-steps and different things. Um, what's kind of been your approach lately as far as producing new video content? Yeah, so in terms of new video content, I've really been on the uh, on sort of the build video thing lately with, you know, the P-40, well, the B-17 that got abandoned, uh, the P-47, and then the A-6, and now the P-40. Uh, a lot of people really seem to like that format, even though it definitely does swell to maybe more installments per subject than I would necessarily like. I find it's easier to sort of narrate and and build as I go and then edit quickly. And that just makes more episodes. It definitely covers the whole build instead of trying to cram everything into like 15 minutes, like a lot of channels do. And then with the Edward Mustang, I've actually been doing a thing lately where I've been, instead of doing, you know, the full build, like watch me actually do everything. It's more of like a, I stop and check in every couple steps. So it's like, now that we've got it primed, let's look at where it is. Let's look at what I had to deal with and walk through it. And those are shorter, like 10 to 20 minute ish videos. And then I've also been playing around with Patreon and essentially I'm still kind of trying to figure out how to, how to balance that in a way that like lets people get a great look behind the scenes of what's going on and also provides them a good value. If they're also in turn helping to support, you know, the videos and things like that. One thing I've been doing for them lately is I actually have a build that is going on over there that is exclusive only to Patreon. So it's not showing up anywhere else on the internet. And it is a pretty cool one. And it's kind of going alongside some of my other projects. And so it's definitely tough to, uh, it's tough to not go throw that around the internet because I, you know, 
like uh, like everyone else, I love validation, but it, it's also going to be interesting to uh, you know to be able to kind of drop that. I don't know, maybe before the end of the year, if if I'm uh, if I'm lucky, just kind of drop me like surprise. Here's a build I did. But if if uh, anybody wants to follow along with what that is, that is over on my Patreon page, along with like early access to new videos as they come out. So I tend to post things there like day or a day and a half before they go up on YouTube. So if you're one of those people who is for some reason, you know, chomping at the bit for hot new P40 content, that is the place to go for it. What is your uh, Patreon page? Just uh, Dukes Models on Patreon? Yeah, patreon.com slash Dukes Models. And I am digging into the possibilities of adding like merch and stuff like that on there, but that's a whole level of time and effort that I haven't been able to put into it yet. Yeah, like a lot of the some of the SMC SMCG swag uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I've I've got experience designing stuff like that. It's just designing it in a way that I can also make it exclusive to Patreon is a giant nightmare to figure out. So I guess it's more like the back end stuff that I need to work on, which honestly is about as exciting as filling out health insurance forms. <laughs> well, that's pretty bad. <laughs> IPMS Nationals 2021. Any chance you're gonna? shoot on over to Vegas and uh, check that out if it happens? Probably not just because yeah, the, with, with all the COVID-19 stuff still going on, I'm assuming if, if, you know, if the vaccines all work out, that things will probably be starting to return to normal at that time. But, uh, but at the same time, like we've got a lot of kind of deferred travel that we would want to tackle. So I'll probably have to stick with the family for that. But I do know that uh, nationals are apparently coming back to San Marcos in I think it's 2022 or 2023. And so I will definitely be at those cause they are, you know, right around the corner for me. All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you, Matt, for your time. We sure appreciate having you here. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you about all the, all the things that you're working on and take a deep dive into some of your, uh, thoughts and techniques and everything. So thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to be here. Just one more time for our listeners, if they are interested in seeing your builds and seeing your work and your content, what are the places where they can uh, see that at? Yeah. So if you want to find any of my stuff, basically just search for Dugs Models pretty much on any platform out there. It's D-O-O-G-S Models. It's a longstanding nickname of mine. So I've got a Facebook page. I have, I'm on Instagram, kind of, YouTube and Patreon. Sorry, no Twitter. I'm also on the internet itself. Um, Dugsmodels.com is the blog address. Well, thanks again, Matt. Really enjoyed our visit. Look forward to maybe having you come on the show again, and uh, we'll talk with you again soon. Yeah, definitely. It's been a blast. Thanks, Matt. Take care. All right. Well, that was our interview with Matt McDougall. You might have noticed I wasn't there. Um, they're really good at scheduling these things when I'm not available. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's not my choice. But anyway, hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. It really wasn't their fault. We have, you know, things happen and uh, we can't always be where we want to be. On our next episode, we're going to be interviewing Will Pattison. Will Pattison is well-known on YouTube. He was one of the co-founders of the Scale Modelers Critique Group on, on uh, Facebook. 
and he is one of the hardest working men in scale modeling. Thanks, Doug. Also in our next episode, we're also going to be talking to Malcolm Childs. Um, Do a quick interview with him. We just mentioned him um, with the new podcast, Just Making Conversation. But Malcolm also is the founder of a UK charity called Models for Heroes. We talked about him briefly in our last episode. Encourage everybody. It's it's a great effort. It's really a, an amazing group. They work with military veterans over in the UK, and they use uh, models to you know help in their in their therapy and treatment. So it's a great cause. You can check them out at modelsforheroes.org.uk. Well, guys, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, the interview with Matt was a lot of fun. Look forward to hearing some more about uh, the individual segments and seeing how that goes. And uh, next time, uh, talking to Will, that'll be a lot of fun to do that as well. So you guys take care, and we'll talk in uh, two weeks. All right. Take care, everybody. DJ. Oh, you want me to say goodbye? Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>